It is great to be here with you again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. And while you're turning there, again, it's great to be with you. My name is Lucas Turner, uh, and you know I've been part of the team that's been helping go through the series of Daniel and is now going through an Advent series. And so, uh, yeah, I just hope that we're getting excited for Christmas. It's almost Christmas time. I think, are any kids still going to school for the next two weeks? Raise your hand. We will rescue you if need be. No. Uh, and then hopefully work projects are kind of wrapping up. Hopefully we're gearing up uh, for this exciting time of year. This is meant to be an exciting time. But historically, on the church calendar, this is also a time of year called Advent, which just simply means that it's a time of celebration and anticipation of, of the arrival of Jesus Christ in human form over 2,000 years ago. So these past few weeks, we've been able to see several different of the traditional Advent themes. We've seen hope and peace and joy, which means if you're you know, playing bingo on your Advent themes, that means today we have love. Uh, and so we're going to see, uh, you know, we're going to narrow in on this idea that Jesus is our ultimate source of love. Again, focusing a sermon on Jesus, making it a Christological sermon, is something that I hope is not new or unfamiliar ground for you. I think it's something that you as a church should, should expect of whoever comes up here and preaches, not just during the month of December, but, but every week throughout the year. But today, we admit we're spending a little more time honing in on the love of Christ, especially as we anticipate his birth and worship him in this upcoming week. So like I said, we'll be in John chapter 3 this morning, going from verse 1 through verse 21. This is a, a great passage about Jesus that is unique to John's gospel it isn't found in any of the others, but, but it gives us one of the most unique phrases that we have to describe Christians today, being born again. And it also gives us what is probably the most famous Bible verse in all of the Western world, John 3.16. But you know what? Uh, so many people who have never read a page of Scripture or even been to a church service, guess what? They know the words, for God so loved the world. But my job today and, and our work together is to show that the context of that entire passage is crucial to understanding and then sharing the gospel out of this part of the Bible well with others. Belief is crucial to knowing Jesus as the only begotten son who saves people from their sins. And an important note to that end, an important starting point, is the need to be born again. So with that in mind, I, ha I titled this sermon this week, Believe It or Not, You Must Be Born Again. So when we think about the word love, that's a really unique word, right? You know, out of all of our Christian vocabulary and jargon, I think it's probably the one that the rest of the world is most comfortable with. I mean, who doesn't love the idea of love, right? It's written about and, and des described and discussed in all of our art, our media, books, songs, movies, whatever you think of. But just looking at the way that people use the word love kind of reveals that, that we have different meanings behind it when we use it. It can mean familial or friendly love. It could mean sexual attraction, although I think in today's day and age, we've worked really hard to try to you know, separate the two ideas to, to our detriment. I think those are uniquely tied in different ways. But you know what? Most often today, I think it just means some sort of vague acceptance of one another with no preconditions and our favorite word, no judgments, right? Needless to say, we've warped the idea or, or what the word love is supposed to mean. We make it mean whatever we want it to. And the story, unfortunately, is the same when we apply the idea of love biblically or, or theologically. When we think about the love of God or the love of Jesus, it's really been reworked and, and massaged over the years into whatever we most prefer or the one that we're most comfortable sharing with others. 
But we're going to see that the love of God today, it's there. But it's revealed in the midst of judgment and in the midst of redemption from sin. We can see and love Jesus as a Savior only when we realize that we need to be saved from something in the first place. And the way that we're going to be able to put this into practice, it's simple and, and it's nothing new. It's to remind ourselves continually of what our Lord did on the cross in our place. We're going to see in the text today that there's language of looking up to the one who was raised up and kind of giving away the homework answers before we do the homework. That one who's lifted up, that's Jesus. He was a participant in one of the most dramatic moments in all of human history. And there are all sorts of ideas and theories as to what he actually accomplished on the cross. But, but at its core, deep down, I think John chapter 3 helps us to see that what drove the events of Calvary, what drove the death and then the life and then the birth of Jesus that we celebrate this week, it was love. It was a godly love for sinners, a love that transformed all of human history and a love that we celebrate today. Karl Barth is uh, one of the most influential theological minds of the 20th century. And, and we disagree on a few things. I think our evangelical culture would with him, but he he had a huge effect on the, the theological discussion of the last century. And when he was asked toward the, towards the end of his life, what was the most profound thing he learned in decades of study of Scripture, he thought for a second and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what our time in Scripture is going to tell us today, that Jesus loves us more than we could ever know. It's always hard when doing a bit of a standalone sermon to just kind of parachute into the text without doing you know, any of the work to, to kind of get there, to get the context work out. So, so allow me to do a little bit of homework for us on the go. So we're in John chapter 3, which means we're in John's gospel about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so far, John's really done just a few things. In, in John chapter 1, he's described Jesus as the eternal word of God, and then a little bit later as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he gives a huge introduction to him. And then in John chapter 2, we get a miraculous event, the, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And then we have a dramatic, you know, first table flipping at the temple. So, you know, the, these signs, the, the miraculous event you know, is something that John calls a sign. And that's something that Jesus does to, to draw people to him in repentance and faith. So between the miracles, between the original calling card, and then between the, the event that would definitely cause a stir in the temple, he's already started to create a moment, a, a bit of a movement around him. It's becoming harder and harder to ignore this new religious leader, especially since he came from within the Jewish nation itself. And so with that as our context, we have a high-ranking leader who decides to reach out to Jesus. In the spirit of Baptist alliteration, uh, all of my sections today begin with the, uh, have a word that begin with the letter B. So this first section, our first bit of scripture today, is uh, going to be this idea of a born love. Nicodemus, a member of the cultural, religious, and political elite, says, I've got to hear more from this guy. And so with that in mind, we pick up in verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Small little side note, the, Greek, the Hebrew and the Greek words for uh, truly, 
uh, amen, which is where we get amen. So anytime you hear that, he's saying amen, amen. That's what historically, whenever someone says amen, they're affirming the truthfulness of whatever someone is speaking. And he does it quite a bit. So sorry, in verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You have Nicodemus coming in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. I would probably say the embarrassment or the shame of darkness to, to, to reach out and to learn from Jesus. And he's just admitting it and using the evidence of what he's heard, saying, look, if this stuff is true, no one can do what you've already done unless he's from God. He even gives him a little bit of credit, maybe a compliment by calling him rabbi, a teacher. Uh, but you know, he's trying to you know, acknowledge there's a little bit of gaining traction in this ministry here, but, but he's also he's prodding a little. You know, he, he's trying to see, is there, is there a secret behind this? Is, is there a man behind the mask? If you're familiar with the Wizard of Oz, is there a, you know, a, a man working levers behind the wizard to make this all work? And how does Jesus respond to this like halfway compliment, halfway accusation, halfway question? I don't really know. I mean, he, he does it as clearly and yet mysteriously as possible. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's a little bit of old language and some new language here for the Jewish audience. The kingdom of God, they're very familiar with. That is something that, that this promised Messiah would come down from heaven and institute on earth through some sort of military or political conquest, at least according to Jewish thought at the time. And these Jews, these Jewish leaders who had faithfully kept every aspect of the law have always thought they would be kind of a, a part of this, a co-laborer in this conquest, this worldly takeover, Right? But then Jesus throws you for a loop, and he says, I'm going to give you something that's actually impossible to associate yourself with, something that's physically impossible. We can't be born again. Got to turn this page here. You know, Jesus, I mean, Jesus gives us this and says, good luck. Go, go try your best. But we understand how childbirth works. Nicodemus understand, understands how childbirth works and how ridiculous it is to say that a second birth is needed to be a part of this triumphant kingdom. But when Jesus talks about a new birth, he's, he's talking about something that we haven't really seen yet before in Scripture. That's our new language. To a, to a Jewish Bible scholar like Nicodemus, his ears would have perked up immediately if the phrase born again had been used in the Old Testament. But he doesn't because it hasn't. It's really a confounding thing to hear. And yet Jesus, in the midst of this wild statement, says, you know what, don't worry about that. Just keep focusing on this other bit. You know, this, uh, this marvel, this, this thing that you want to pay so much attention to, don't worry about that. The new birth is not your own. That birth is actually going to be initiated by someone else, the Holy Spirit himself. And to drive it home, he says, you don't have control over your first birth, so, so don't try to get any more control over this birth as well. And in what has to be the hall of fame of easiest ways to illustrate your sermon— the idea of being born uh, was made abundantly clear to me again this week. Uh, if you've noticed, uh, my wife Lindsay has been quite pregnant these past few months, but I'm excited to tell you that she is not nearly as pregnant anymore. Uh, she's not here today, uh, but yeah, she, uh, she welcomed home our third baby, a healthy boy named George, last Saturday morning, so I think he's eight days old now. 
Uh, and I think I have just a few pictures of him. I don't have them up there. Uh, I've only got probably two or 300 in, on the phone. So if you want to see him, I, I've got proof that he's there. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think he's a good looking little baby. But either way, they're, they're doing just great. But it was during this birth process that I was reminded of just how one-sided that workload really is. You know, when a, when a mother is working or laboring to, to bring a baby into the world, she's doing an incredible thing, an incredible amount of work. And, and by her side, there's usually a great team of doctors and nurses and, and midwives and specialists and surgeons and all these different things uh, that just give years of experience and encouragement. And then usually a husband that doesn't really offer a whole lot of, you know, hey, you're doing great. Remember to breathe. That's really about all I can do. Uh, but you know what? That baby, you know, that, you know, my son last week, what's he doing in there the whole time? You know, he's realistically, the doctors even told us last week, he's kind of just waiting around to make a short little trip, you know, out of the womb and into the world. You know, he's part of this birth narrative, and we're going to celebrate his birthday uh, a year from now. But guess what? We realized that all of the work that he was in charge of was very little. I mean, he was just present for it. And as much control as George had over his physical birth last week, Jesus is saying that, that George, that I, that, that you, that Nicodemus, that, that everyone else has just as much, or I guess as little control over their spiritual birth. It originates from the Holy Spirit, not, not from our minds or not from our hearts or not for you know, trying hard enough to make it so. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that due to sin, we are dead men and women walking. You know, I had a great chaplain buddy one time that said, I don't know about you, but dead people can't do a whole lot. And he's, he's right. In order to love Jesus, Jesus is saying that we need a new life. And guess what? A new life starts with a new birth. Another thing that's important to notice is in verse 6, where it kind of seems that Jesus is, is painting a bit of like a dichotomy between flesh and spiritual uh, realities. And we need to remember that in the early Greek and Roman culture that John wrote this gospel, there was this heretical movement that used verses like this to say that, you know, the the physical world and the physical bodies that we possess, those are, you know, they're they're no value. They're they're, they're weak. They're, They're worthless, really. And really, the only value is what's in the spiritual world. But I would say the, the consistent Christian response for the last 2,000 years has been that there is value and, and dignity and worth to the human body in the flesh. We know that because, first off, God created our bodies. And then, second off, we understand that God himself, Jesus, inhabited a human body. And he lived in a physical world. So rather than denying the value of God's natural order and those who live embodied lives— we give value and worth to both the physical and the spiritual parts of existence because they both reflect a greater starting point, a greater creator, God himself. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to best contextualize a way that we can put into practice the idea of being born again. For one, I think we're going to see a little bit fuller picture of how to do so in the next section. And secondly, it's honestly something that a lot of churches and Christians have gotten wrong when trying to apply it over the past you know, several hundred years. Some churches use this as a way to put a really hard fence around things like baptism or communion or church membership. And they say that unless you can tell us about your birth experience, your, your, your spiritual rebirth in, in specific detail, you might not be a true Christian. I mean, it's saying if you can't remember it, then it probably didn't happen, right? And I would probably caution against that. You know, I would say that it's not so much important, it's not so important to remember your birth, but to simply know that you're alive, Right? You know, if you can say that you remember the exact moment God moved you from spiritual death to spiritual life, great. Praise God. Share that good news with others. 
But the more important thing is to be able to, to talk about being alive in Christ now, this day. Focus more on, on, on our Savior. Focus more on loving Jesus and wonder at the love that he has shown us. And then allow the Spirit to do his work of either bringing about or recognizing a new birth in the first place. That's what a born love looks like for Nicodemus then and what a born love looks like for us today. So if the first way that we see Jesus uh, is through this idea of a born love, where does that take us next? I mean, is there anything that comes after being born again? I would argue that there is, and it's in our next section in verses 9 through 15. That's why I'm calling this section a believing love. Starting in verse 9, it says the following. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus asks another question. And at first glance, I think it seems pretty reasonable. He says, how can these things be so? How can what you're describing actually come to happen? And at first, I have to admit, Jesus seems a little bit harsh or kind of severe in his response here. He's saying, you're the teacher. Shouldn't you know this? Don't you have the answer book somewhere? But what he's saying is actually similar to language that he's used elsewhere. In John chapter 5, in just a few uh, chapters, Jesus is going to say, He's going to you know, indict and condemn the Jewish leaders for searching the Scriptures closely to look for the Messiah. And yet now that the Messiah is here, they've missed him completely. And, and they're rejecting him and the eternal life that he offers. And this is a small side note, but it's really important here. In verses 11 and 12, you see several instances of the second person pronoun, you, being used. But this is actually one of the limitations of translating from uh, what's called a declined language, like Greek, into uh, the language that we use, English. There's a little bit of limitations there. The you changes in number. So when Jesus first says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 11, he's speaking directly to Nicodemus, okay? But then that, that you, it's singular. But after that, the you that he uses is plural, which is basically saying you all, or since we're here in Texas, y'all. You know, he's saying to Nicodemus, I'm saying this to you, that this is written speech to you directly, but the truths that apply here apply to y'all, or if you really know your southern uh, language, all y'all, right? But what Jesus means here by saying, hey, you're a teacher of Israel, you should know this, he's saying that the answer to this, the answer to the, this mystery, the answer to what Nicodemus is looking for, it's found within Jewish biblical history, what we call the Old Testament. And although a teacher has an extra emphasis and need to know their, their source material in order to be able to turn around and teach us this, this event that he's referring to is going to be well known by any Israelite that's hearing this speech at this time. You and I might not be super familiar with the, the events of Numbers chapter 21, but the Jewish audience Jesus had here certainly did. So what happens in Numbers 21? Well, while in the wilderness, while wandering in the desert after the events of the Exodus, there's this wild episode of venomous snakes coming into the camp of the Israelites and, and, and biting uh, so many of, of the people while they were in the camp. And this was a punishment that God sent upon Israel because of their consistent complaining and grumbling and even saying, why don't we go back to slavery among the Egyptians? That's better than what we have now. So 
you have this drastic event. People are dying because of this. And, and so God, or I'm sorry, Moses prays to God for deliverance and God grants it to him. He says, okay, I want you to make a serpent out of bronze and lift this thing into the air. And if anyone is bitten by another snake, they just look to this raised serpent and they will be saved. Now, we admit that's a really bizarre episode for us to kind of make sense of today in our modern Western reading lenses. But this is a very important event in Israel's history. And later on in the Old Testament, King Hezekiah is going to have to go so far as destroying this bronze serpent because it was becoming an easy path of idolatry for the, Jew, for the Jewish audience. But what Jesus does here is what he does so many other times. He says that this entire episode from Jewish history was not an end in and of itself, but it was meant to point to something. And it's meant to point to him. The point of looking to Jesus when he was raised up, which is language for when he was raised up on the cross, is to see him dying in our place, to see him dying for our sins. And, and he says that the effect of the new birth, the result of being brought to spiritual life by the Holy Spirit is to turn around and believe in him and the work that he did by being lifted up. We must be born again in order to believe in Jesus. Anything else, everything else outside of this belief, it's going to leave you wanting. It's not enough. It won't ever be enough. You know, in this season full of excess and indulgence, it's so easy to fall into the trap of, you know, thinking that a successful Christmas or, or vacation is surrounded by how many, you know, perfect moments or pictures you get with your family or however many great gifts you give or probably for you younger guys in here, how many great gifts you receive, right? You know, it might be in how much you wow your friends with all that you've accomplished in the last year or, you know, really impress people with what you plan to get done in the next year. You know, in a way, this made me kind of think of the classic a Christmas Carol story, the character of Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, he was, he was shown that all of his greed and harshness and profit-driven mindset, it's actually driven people away from him rather than draw them in towards him. We always like to think that material wealth and, and you know, success will draw people towards us, but he sees here that it's just broken relationships with others. The moral of a Christmas carol is that finding peace in enough stuff or having you know, security and enough in our bank accounts or, or having a successful enough business will never be enough. Now, uh, we're always going to need more when it comes to you know, salvation within ourselves whenever we're trying to, to build up our own salvation. Now, to be truthful, I, I don't think Charles Dickens quite sticks the landing where he has Scrooge just try to be a better person and a nicer person to resolve all of his issues. We as Christians say that the solution is not within ourselves to, to try harder, to be better. We, we don't need improvement. We need redemption. And that redemption, our, our salvation, according to the Bible and according to Jesus here, is not found within ourselves. Glory and hope and love, they're not our own when left to ourselves. We need to look outside of ourselves and we need to look towards Jesus as the hope and the glory and the love that we've needed all along. And where is that most clearly displayed? It's when the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross to die for the sins that he didn't commit, but that we committed. You know, at times, often even, we need to have an honest conversation with ourselves and evaluate if we're placing anything as equivalent or maybe even more of a Savior than Jesus is in our lives. Tim Keller is a pastor and a writer based out of New York City, and he does a great job of helping to identify possible idols in our own lives. And it basically boils down to something that we place our hope, our identity, or our security in. And if that thing was taken away from us, 
it would devastate our entire lives. It would shake us to our cores. And so if you're here today and you're holding on to something, holding on to anything as closely as you are Jesus, let it go. It isn't worth it. It can't bear your sins in your place. It can't die in your place. Only our Savior, Jesus Christ himself, can bear such a burden. We know it because he already did it, living and dying in the place of sinful humanity. Look up to our Savior and don't look anywhere else, and you will begin to experience a believing love growing in your own heart. So those two sections are the main ones that I had when I was putting together the big idea of, you know, whether people believe it or not, they must be born again to be saved. Now, our last section, uh, in keeping with the letter B as much as possible, says that we need a begotten love. But of course, this passage, we have to admit, gives us one of the most well-known and widely broadcasted verses in all of Scripture. But when we start to read these, I think it's important to remember something, that in the original manuscripts, our second and third sections, verses uh, what is it, 9 through 21, actually are just one paragraph together. So, you know, in fact, uh, th- this means that when we, what we read here, what we read starting in verse 16, has to immediately be tied to what came before it in verse 15. And where it, what does it say? It says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And with that in mind, it's saying that, you know, believing in Jesus by virtue of the Spirit, being born again, is crucial to what comes next. So with that in mind, Let's read John 3:16 and on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In our current modern evangelical church church culture, it can often be easy in a weird way to almost look down on, on John 3.16 because it's become so widely you know, used and accepted that it almost feels like it's been watered down by the culture around us, right? We think, well, sure, if, you know, if football players put it on their, on their face paint or if it's on a sign in the background of a big television or, or you know, sporting event moment, you know, we as Christians, we, if we really have it together, we need to have an even better verse or even something deeper to share with something, something with real teeth that someone might not expect or that would reveal just how much of the Bible we really know. But take a look at it again. Look at John 3.16. This is an incredible short summation of the gospel in a mere 24 words. John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, and rightfully so. I mean, if you, have any, if you don't have any verses memorized in Scripture, this is a great one to have. And if someone says that this is their only reference point to the Bible, great. What a great and solid place to start with. And the reason that I titled this section a begotten love, other than you know, keeping that B pattern going for all of us, is that in verses 16 and 18, we have a word that has all sorts of you know, kind of history and, and debate behind it. But where we see his only son in verses 16 and 18, we have the, the Greek word that's translated as begotten when referring to Jesus as God's only son. 
Now, modern translations, modern ver- versions tend to skew away from it just a little bit, but I think most people in this crowd have probably been familiar with thinking of John 3, 16, referring to Jesus as God's only begotten son. And the word begotten simply means that the only son of God himself, Jesus, is, is wholly unique as, as a person and as a member of the Trinity that we call God. Begotten reflects a, a, an exact shared nature and yet a distinction and a priority given to one over the others. And all of that, I think without much controversy, we easily confess about Jesus. He was the only Son of God because of his unique relationship to the Father and the Spirit and his unique relationship by living a physical, embodied life here on earth. <clears throat> but, you know, I'm try- as I'm trying to think through, I-, I was working, why is it that John 3.16 is so popular? Well, why is it that most people don't really flinch when they hear these words? I think part of it is just that it talks about the love of God as something feels like universal, right? That, that drives God to do something drastic and that you only really have to believe in to, to have eternal life or, or find paradise, right? You know, now I, I do want to take a quick side. I think most people, when they think of the word believe, they use some level of belief kind of like Darth Vader was a bad guy or that Aslan was a good guy. We just think of it as almost like a literary character. Now, you know, the Christian belief is that, no, this was really true. This actually happened as the scriptures uh, present it. But, you know, if you think about it, that that verse, while famous itself, it continues on. That that ideology goes on in verse 17. Look at it. it. It shows that Jesus fits right in with the modern definition of love. He didn't bring judgment to anybody. He, he brought salvation. Jesus is all positives, no negatives, right? That's a win for everyone. And, and for the sake of filling up churches and, and convincing everyone to become Christians, I wish that that was it. I I wish that there was only one side to the coin of Jesus coming into the world. But we understand coins have two sides, right? There's more to this passage. And and the context that follows verses 16 and 17 makes it clear that Jesus saves those who believe in him, but that there is judgment for those who do not believe in him. It's true that Jesus does not bring judgment into the world. Because guess what? We were already judged as being guilty. This is that idea of original sin. This goes back to the first sin of Adam and Eve when they ate of the forbidden fruit. And it says that everyone who physically followed Adam, who was born after Adam, is in Adam, meaning we are just as equally guilty of sin and and polluted by sin and in need of redemption. That's why we must be born again and why we must believe in Jesus so that when we are judged, we have moved from this default guilty verdict that all of humanity is in and we're moved over into this area of righteousness and, and innocence and, and love and holiness. We're seen to love the light rather than the darkness. Our works are revealed to be as good, not so that we can be saved by Jesus, but because he has already saved us. And you know, if you think about it, there are all sorts of ties between our passage this morning and the passage that we went through three weeks ago, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. This idea of light and darkness, it's a theme that John repeats from the first chapter. And we see that it's an illustration that he's comfortable using to reveal the dividing line that Jesus is for all of humanity. Our hearts are all inclined to darkness. But but for those who have been born again, who believe in Jesus and the work that he did, it's revealed that they're no longer in Adam, but now in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22 is pretty clear when it says that, For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 
There are all sorts of ways to describe those who fall on opposite sides of the fence when it comes to Jesus. In Adam or in Christ. In darkness or in light. Guilty, justified, lost, found, or even, at its most dramatic, dead or alive. So if John offers in these few verses, a way to determine if someone is still in darkness or in the light, I think it's only right that we apply a similar standard to ourselves today. You know, we, we know this idea that the concept of knowing a person by the fruits they produce, because guess what? Jesus told us to do so in Matthew chapter 7. And, and while the language might seem extreme to us here, seeing if someone loves darkness or loves light, I mean, clearly we all love the light, right? The message, the, the subtext behind it is plain. It's saying that do we love something other than Jesus more than Jesus? And remember, Scripture is pretty clear that that everything apart from Jesus is actually darkness. It's away from the light. So we need to ask ourselves, is there some small part of our our lives, you know, a sinful habit, or maybe even something good, like our relationship with our parents or, or with our children, that we would not surrender before we surrender to our Lord and love? You know, these little miniature idols, these little mini idols, they pull on our affections and desires all the time. But when they're compared to the love that was shown to us by the only begotten son, they they fall way short. They, they, They can't even compare to the one who was sent because of the incredible love God has shown to his people. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, my hope has been to briefly show you that Jesus is the greatest love the world has ever known. But before we can see and worship him for who he is, we need to have a greater problem solved. We need, we need a born love, a new birth. We need to be born again so that we can respond to Jesus properly in faith and obedience. From there, we can see that our love believes that the work of Jesus on our behalf was enough to save us from sin and death and to bring us in, into eternal relationship with a loving father. We need to have a believing love. And finally, we need a begotten love. We must remember and continually study and explore just who it was that, that lived and died on our behalf. We, it wasn't just a God who tried to act human as, as if some sort of actor on a stage. And, and it wasn't just a mere man with mere morals that are good to you know, uh, try to copy. No, it was the God-man, uh, the fully divine and fully human person of Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God the Father. Take joy in that. Find love in that and be amazed at who exactly it was that was lifted up on the cross at Calvary. And remember that all of the actions of God, from from creation to crucifixion to creation again, they're driven by love. Paul puts it bluntly in Romans 5.8 when he says, and I think this is one of those incredibly important verses that it's so easy, just memorize it, keep it close to your heart. When he says that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whether that initial moment of creation, dealing with our sin, sending a Savior, or even giving us a new birth by the Spirit, it has been the love of God working at each and every step. So this Christmas season, my hope for you, for your families, and for those you encounter is that they see that the love of Christ overflows from your heart and is generously and abundantly shared with those who need it this season. Jesus loves us. This we know, for the Bible tells us so. What good news for you and I today.